This is a language warning for people offended by the word f The reason why this warning is in place is because in this particular episode of Laughing Dead, they say f a lot. Keep listening. Welcome to Laughing Dead. This is me, Sammy Shah, right here behind the microphone. Today on this episode of Laughing Dead, we're going to speak to two awesome, awesome legends of their respective aspects of comedy. In Australia, the legendary Bev Killick is going to be joining us. Bev's been a part of the comedy circuit for years and years. Everyone knows her. Everyone, well, many people love her because Bev can be fairly polarizing in the best and coolest ways possible. She's rock and roll. You're going to enjoy listening to her. The majority of the people in the room are laughing at you. Yeah. And it's obvious. Then you, you, you can just go them. And the other guest. You'd have them kidnapped and deprogrammed, <laughs> right, really. You yeah, know, yeah. locked in a motel and beaten until they said they didn't want to. It was so solid. Yes, that's right. The legendary Alexi Sale. That Alexi Sale who basically started and created alternative comedy in England in the 70s. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to be one of the first people to just do stand-up comedy in his area, that would have been almost as frightening as when I started doing it in Pakistan, actually, now that I think about it. So, not that impressive now, in retrospect. Anyway, you know, it's still a great interview. You guys got to listen to it. It's coming up on this episode of Laughing Dead. Let's start with Bev Killick. Bev and I have gigged together a few times in Australia, and she's just one of these old-school rock and roll comedians, gets up, destroys the stage, destroys the crowd, makes everything funny. The cool thing about Bev, other than how funny she is, is that she started off in clowning, like as a traditional old-school, formally trained, yeah, they have formal training for it, clown. The method that I was taught was called Auguste, which is the white, fa- it comes from white face. Right. And then you extend on it and you, do, you find your own clown and you come up with your own name and, yeah. and idiosyncrasies and all do that. Do you guys hate Stephen King? Like, for the age, like, he really hurt the Man. industry. That guy. Totally. <laughs> Seriously, I would be doing, I'd be doing um, gigs like at Caulfield Race Course, right? Right. And we'd be clowning. And, we'd, and then these kids were just like screaming, <laughs> running from you. It's like, I'm just a little clown. He did to clowns what, what, she, what Jaws the movie did to sharks, yeah, basically. But also, it's almost like you're um, indestructible and kids hit you. Oh, really? And they do horrible things to you, wow. which is one of the reasons why I don't do it anymore, yeah, of course. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, so what is, the, what is the worst clown gig then? Oh, the, it's probably at, at the Caulfield Race Course, right? Yeah. They would bring us, we'd, we'd be hired to look after these kids in this little corral mm-hmm. and we'd be doing craft and all that sort of stuff with them but we'd also have a show and um, they just the organisers decided it'd be really funny to put the clowns in sumo suits. This is not something that clowns normally do. This no. Is the organizers no, clown do. is enough. Right. Yeah. You don't need a sumo <laughs> yeah, on need, top. Yeah, exactly. There's no, you don't need that extra layer. <laughs> so they put us in these sumo suits and then these kids just were jumping up and down on us like we were a bloody uh, blow-up castle. Right. <laughs> And I, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Yeah. And then they put us on a mechanical bull. And it was just like, let's see. Who are these organizers? I know. It's just like, let's let's have fun with the clowns, I think. And I went around the corner. 
and had a uh, just had a cigarette, just like almost sobbing. Shaking, right? And this kid was um, just about to come up to me, and I just went, "Fuck off." <laughs> 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 and leave me alone. Was Stephen it's King. Like the, it's like the <laughs> yeah. enemy. The enemy coming right. towards us. Like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> just want to pop in to tell you that coming up in a minute is going to be Alexi's sale. Here to talk just about really serious, poignant, philosophical issues. You know, I remember buying a Kit Kat over here and yeah. it tasted completely now. Oh, it does? The whole world seemed... Wrong. <laughs> Upside felt, down. You know, yeah. <laughs> the Kit Kat had betrayed me. All right. While I have you guys here, please go to the iTunes page, hit the five-star rating, give a review, do everything you can to make this podcast great. We're going to make podcasting great again. We're going to build a wall around this podcast. We're going to grab this. Po- anyway. All right. Back to the show. Bev and I started discussing hecklers because, see, people think that there's only one kind of a heckler, which is that guy who sits in the back of the room and yells, you're not funny. And and that's what you all visualize when you visualize a heckler. But there's many kinds and and there's many types of heckling. And the most insidious one is the quiet heckler, which is the person who is not just silent, but radiating that silence. And I saw one in example at a gig with Bev once, which was the first time I gigged with her. There's a guy in the audience who wasn't just quiet, but noticeably quiet. And you asked him why he wasn't laughing and he's, and I think, he, I can't remember what he said, but it was something that made it clear that it's because he didn't think women were funny. Yeah. And th- I, you walked him after that. I, I just have this thing where it's like, you know, when there's the majority of the people in the room are laughing at you. Yeah. And it's obvious. Then you, you, you can just go them. Right. And just put them, if they're putting you down so publicly... I reckon you're well within your rights to just completely annihilate them. But the trick is to make sure that the rest of the room's on your side. They right? are, yeah, and if, yeah. and that's when you can um, when when you can deal with a heckler. When the room's on your side, you just get them involved. Yeah, yeah, and and you're done. Has there ever been a heckler who got the better of you though? I've cried before. Really? I've actually stood there and gone, "That's enough now." Whoa! What Please you, just stop. What'd they say? I can't even remember. It was like at the SB. You know, you know those gigs when you're first starting, mm-hmm. when it's take you know all day just to prepare, you know, just going over notes and yeah. yeah, and you, yeah. Wa- you wake up the morning of that gig, just go, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a gig, <laughs> you know, and just even walking to the gig is like, like I won't stop. do this. I'll, I'll just die. It'll be better if I yeah. die. Like those uh, kind of yeah, thoughts are going you're through. You're just your head. like you know, you're so nervous. It's horrible, right? And so I finally got up on stage, and then then some guys yelled out something. And wouldn't stop, and I had nothing. Yeah, and then you didn't have the kept going, kept going. It's like, please just stop. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, but yeah, I mean, you can only be tough so long. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is that. You can only be tough so long, where it does break through the armor sometime. But I always feel like the 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 comments from like a heckler never hurts as much as say, a reviewer or, or yeah. another comic or someone like that. Yeah. Because we know how to contextualize a heckler. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I remember the um, angriest I ever saw you was we were in, um, again, in Perth. Uh, I was in Perth for like four years, which is why all my stories are Perth-based. But you got angry at another comic because he made a misogynistic joke Yes, on stage. I did. I remember uh, that. Tim Beckett. And, yes. And he... Oh, man. I what the joke uh, was. It was something about... Um, Julia Gillard. Julia Gillard. Um, 
and just should have stayed in the kitchen where you belong. It's a country, not a canteen. Th- it's there a country, be a not prime a canteen. Minister who's a woman. It's a can- That's and right. You lost. It. I lost my shit. <laughs> and John McAllister was even like, "Bev, Bev." John McAllister, the guy who books he the was rooms. Try- yeah, 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 yeah. And he was trying to um, appease me and everything. I was going, "John, seriously, no, yeah, no, no, no." And um, he went and got me another bottle of wine, trying to calm me down. I'm just <laughs> like, nah, not help. nah, nah. And I think I, I just went online and went, uh, went on straight on stage and just yeah. and dealt with it straight away, and just went, that is that is shit. What and so what said. is the what is the reaction from the audience that time? Like like when when were they also on your side or they were, but because. A, few, a lot of people had laughed at that misogynist material. There was right. a few, there was a whole table at the front. Do you remember? And they were, they were on his side. They then. were on his side. Okay. And I just went, well, I'm not going to. I'm not prepared. And right. This is when I just got really on my high horse, didn't I? I said, <laughs> I'm not prepared to do my comedy for the next forty minutes right. with you assholes sitting right at the front hating me. So I want you to leave. Oh yeah, that's right. So I asked you them did. To leave. You walked them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. walked them out. Yeah, that was pretty hardcore. <laughs> it was pretty hardcore. And it was one guy's birthday. And I went, well, happy birthday. <laughs> and fuck off. But it's memorable. At least it's <laughs> just memorable. Just go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Just go and enjoy your birthday somewhere else. But they were just like really like wanting to yeah. hate me. And I just thought, I, I've been flown over here to great expense. I'm being paid for this gig. I'm not going to have yeah. you guys ruin it for the everyone else. Because then, um, so then you went on Facebook and and, oh, and, yeah. and talked about it. I did. And <laughs> it got so much attention, didn't it? Yeah. And then the next gig, because I only knew about it from the next gig, which is, because yeah. I, um, I think we were gigging again two days later. That's right. And he was there. And, and as a lover of chaos, I was excited. I was like, this is going to be so I much know, fun back we had to gig together. But, but you guys were fine. In this back room. And I think we shook hands and we. Um, it was a very civil. He apologized. Oh, he did. Okay, yeah. cool. I'm just like, like, and I had all these people going, he's a really nice guy though. I'm going, so? <laughs> so? Yeah. That doesn't account for anything. That doesn't um, account for the joke itself. But interestingly, that was about four years ago, wasn't it? Ah, uh, that would be, yeah, three years ago. Yeah. I think. yeah, yeah. If that happened now, yeah, it'd be very different. It, if it happened now, it'd be a news story, almost. It would be, exactly. Right. But I've, I think I've just always been that person that, you know, holds people accountable. Yeah. I just... I just don't want anyone, any any woman in a crowd, to feel that they can't be everything that they want to be, whether that's a politician, comedian, lawyer, otherwise doesn't right. doesn't matter. And this whole, I just don't think it's funny to say that women belong in a kitchen. I yeah. just I just don't see the joke. The one gig that you still have nightmares about. It was actually in this room. Okay. Um, I. I suppose when I when I first entered the scene, it was like the you know Richard Heath and Dave Grant and Chris Bennett and all those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. You probably I haven't heard. Know, yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> and they used to you know they always put me on the bill because okay. I was like one of the one of the boys in a way. Yeah. So I do a lot of footy clubs with them and whatever. So the comics lounge every year used to have a tattoo convention. Okay. Right. <laughs> and this is before tattoos were that hipster kind of bluebirds, you know. Oh, it was mostly just sailors and like, bikies. Yeah, yeah, sailors and bikies. And it was absolutely packed to the rafters. Um, they'd been here for a good three hours. It's a big room too. It's like a this big is a good room. 100, 150 seater. Yeah. Yeah. And packed to the rafters, they were all blind, rotten, drunk. Okay. So Richard Heath is the MC that had a raffle, that had all these other things, and then I'm the comedian, right? So I've come out in a dress. Oh boy. You know, no tattoos on me right. whatsoever. And Richard's introduced me as a personal friend. They're all talking. Were they were they they're talking throughout Richard as well? They're all or? talking just like you know, and they're they're up and down and they're drinking. It yeah. was like a swill. It was like 
gladiatorial, <laughs> pretty much. Right. But I had to, I had to do the gig. Yeah. You can't just go. Actually, no. So I'm backstage, just freaking out because mm-hmm. I can hear what they're like. So I've walked down on stage and I've put the got my opening gag out, which is um, I put Kate Moss over here. I think it was right. And they they were yelling at get off. I hadn't even said anything. You hadn't even said anything. I hadn't yet. even said anything. Get the fuck off. And then it was, and I remember it was because all this was open here, this section here. Mm-hmm. This, this guy started yelling out, "Show us your tats." Oh, that's clever. <laughs> that was his pun. Which was kind of funny, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Points then all these, funny, yeah. and then this group of women over here, right in the left-hand corner of the room, the, yeah, that very ta- the tattooed ladies over here, yeah. Um, you know, but that, and I'm talking leather. They had leather on the whole bit. Just going, yeah. What are you fucking doing here? Where you haven't got any tattoos? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going. I'm the comedian. I'm the comedian. And they're going, no, you're not. Well, how do you answer that? <laughs> and then you just you can't even start. Yeah. And you kind of go anyway. Anyway, here's my first job. And you had no ink, so they, you had no legitimacy. No with ink. Them. I wasn't tattooed. They just decided to go the comedian. Yeah. And once the women had joined in. It's lost then. It, it's gone. I've got no no one on my side. So what do you do? Um, uh, I, I just tried. I just kept going. Oh, you to, did? Trying to do these jokes. And then Richard, bless him, just walked <laughs> walked on stage and just took the mic from me <laughs> and just went, it's okay, mate. You can, you can, you can go, <laughs> go back to the safe space. Go back to the safe space. And I just went, thank you. But I actually had to leave the back way. Because they would stab you or? They just hated me and I hadn't even done anything. <laughs> they just decided to hate me. It was horrible. It was just absolutely, seriously, yeah. felt like I was, I'd gone to hell. And with people like, you know, getting so angry at me. And, like, and there's not much distance between the stage and no, the crowd. So. But the, I, can, I can clearly remember these women just absolutely tearing me apart. Yeah. Like I'm some clean little white chick in a dress. Right, yeah, yeah. And they have no idea who I am. It's like, if I'd just been able to do my tonsil material, you'd see that I'm a little <laughs> bit of a bogan just like you. Shut up. You yeah. know? But nah, they just didn't want to know. I can remember doing another couple of gigs here after that and still feeling that vibe. Oh, like a trauma <laughs> experience, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've got to get past that gig somehow. Yeah. You know, then you have one and you have a killer and you're right again. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like, it's so embarrassing. You just feel, you just want to disappear. Yeah, it, 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 it carries all the way through to when you get home, the next morning. Yeah, yeah all yeah. of that. And you, you, do, you do have to get past it. Um, there's so many, so many comedians that have died that miserable death and never got, you know, back up on stage. Right. Um, I was not going to let that happen. I mean, I was only probably about four years in. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have, um, I, did, I wasn't uh, fully tough yet. Yeah. But you're four years in also, which is more than one, which means that you're committed to comedy at this point anyway. Yeah, but I got paid. <laughs> That's all that matters. Yeah. Then. There we go. And then Richard's wife was back there just hugging me and yeah. I was crying. It was horrible. The inadvertent theme of this episode became comedy rooms because the interview with Bev was recorded at a comics club in Melbourne and, and one that the same one in which she had died on stage in that story that she so memorably just told. Comedy rooms also have their own kind of personality, their own charisma, charm, and and pitfalls. 
comedians have associations with them that are very strong. They're so strong sometimes that they can actually influence the gig even before the gig has started. See, the good comedy room, the simple comedy room, the comedy room that works, the structure and setup is very, very formal. It's got a green room area, which is an area where the comedians can hang out. Because comedians need to be able to spend time together before the gig starts. They need to be able to have a safe space where they're separate from the crowd, separate from the audience, where it's just them with each other, kind of, you know, bouncing ideas off one another and being as, you know, vocally inappropriate as comedians are backstage. Then there's the stage itself, usually with a brick wall on behind it so that the comedian's kind of framed against that brick wall with a spotlight circled around them and on one mic stand. That's all you need. A stage space should be slightly elevated so you're higher than the audience. I've been in comedy clubs where the stage space was 7 to 10 feet above the audience, which is way too high. I think even 5 feet above the audience is too high. You generally just need maybe a 2 foot high stage. You know, just that kind of space where the crowd is aware that the person who's speaking to them is speaking from an elevated position, which gives a sense of authority and power to the person who's doing the speaking, but not too much that they're then alienated from them. And then you have the audience, and the audience needs to be oriented towards the, the stage. And that's it. It's that simple. Have them facing the comedian, have the comedian looking at them, have the sound quality good so everyone can hear, have everything dark so the focus is on the comedian. Only the comedian should be spotlit and have space for the other comedians to either be backstage so they can talk amongst themselves or come front so they can watch the show. And that's it. It's that simple. Yet it's not always that available sometimes you've got just badly laid out rooms and and that culture in a room is is important there are rooms where i've gigged where if i've done badly once and and and, you know sometimes you have a bad night and a whole bunch of other comedians have done badly we might associate that room with bad gigs for the rest of our lives even if you subsequently go back to the room and do well you'll come back and think nope that's the room that's cursed i'll never do well there you don't remember the good gigs you just remember the bad ones in that one room and then there's other rooms where, you know, just a good open mic, a good new joke, a good new bit that you try out just destroys. It crushes and the crowd loves it and everything. And it doesn't matter how badly you do next time. You will always walk into that room with a sense of confidence. And, and that's the kind of cool power of a comedy club where the room has its own personality. All right, now it's time for Lexi Sale to tell us a little bit about himself and the rooms that meant something to him. As a Pakistani, you'd be surprised to know this, but I had many relatives in in London. Um, right. You might have heard that there is a Pakistani <laughs> community there, and um, and when I was a child, I used to visit them sometimes. And right. one of the things we used to do is, um, as kids, is when, once the adults were doing something else or, or out, the kids would then stay up and watch a lot of late night television and things. And I got that's as a child, I remember seeing your face on TV right. and then hearing very rude jokes, <laughs> and and that was one of my first kind of awakenings to comedy as a subject, as an art form, and those kind of things. And then a lot of your shows made it to Pakistan on um, VHS tapes and then we used to get a lot of British comedy in Pakistan as well Um, but but the idea that that you for me I I always knew you as a television comedian Mm -hmm. right someone who does comedy on TV Mm -hmm. and it's only later I realized that you're a stand-up comic from old like you like you're one of the first ones in England who brought that art form there yeah yeah well I always say that's one of my 
it's only well, it's playing with the idea of my own vanity. But I, you know, I always say a lot's changed since I invented alternative <laughs> comedy. Um, because yeah, I was the you know, I mean, for those, I guess people know a bit, but I mean. You know, in Britain, before the comedy store opened in 1979, there was just comedy was just in the, you know, in the in the, in, the, in the kind of you know the darkest kind of most racist misogynistic right. hole that it was possible to be. You had a few. Um, there was Billy Connolly and you know Jasper Carrot, and, and they were kind of folkies, so they were still. But there was more storytelling. Storytelling, right? yeah, yeah, and obviously it was you know it it came out of the folk movement, so there's that, and then there was just. University review, but they didn't really work live. Mm-hmm. And then there was these terrible, you know, I mean, like, I mean, the, you know, working men's clubs, like a bit like RSL clubs here, you know, right. what I mean, uh, just appalling. And Which is like, because in America, that's the way comedy all started, like as the Borscht Belt kind yeah. of that, yeah. that, that you know, take my wife, please kind of approach. Yeah. And then you come along and you're doing more what now we would call, I suppose, alternative comedy. Yeah. What was the reaction then? Well, it was. Well, I mean, the the comedy story. So, I mean, I'd been doing, I'd been doing that sort of comedy mm-hmm. for a couple of years before then, to to really very little response. I mean, enough response to know that there was an audience out there who didn't want all that other terrible stuff. Right. But I knew nobody. I was just working in a vacuum, and I knew that what I needed was a venue. Um, where I would meet other like-minded performers. I just had that sense. And so the comedy store, two guys um, came, went from London to saw the comedy store in LA, decided to steal the idea, basically, without realising that in Britain then nobody wanted to be a comic because those other right. guys, the guys had set such a bad example that no, you know, you'd rather be you know, in the SAS or, right. you know, like a <laughs> the, trawlerman. The name has been a, sullied then. Yes, right. I mean, so sullied <laughs> that you would not, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, if your son said they wanted to be a comedian back then, you would, you'd have them kidnapped and deprogrammed, right. really, you yeah, know, locked yeah. in a motel and beaten until they said they didn't want to. It was so sullied okay. that nobody really, or nobody wanted to be on the comedy store. And I was the first person who turned up who was, I mean, they were lucky to get me. I mean, the, the, the comedy boom would have happened in Britain anyway, right. but it wouldn't have happened. Without me, it wouldn't have happened in that club at that time. Okay. You know? And it wouldn't quite have had the character that it did, the kind of political uh, character. So, you know, they were lucky that I was out there, really. But through... And also I had the... Because it was, it was in a strip club and uh, after midnight, and it was so rough, you know? And Soho then was... I say in the book, you know, in, that... You know, you, you could still drive into central London then and park where you wanted, but right. when you got back to your car, there'd be a good chance that it was on fire. Right. <laughs> you know, and like, so, uh, but, it, uh, and, and I, because of, you know, my personality, I had, I was the one person in London probably who had the ability to subjugate that audience. Right. You know, and do intelligent political comedy at the same time. Because London audiences are notorious that when they turn on a comedian, um, and I was warned about this when I, when I went to London last year yeah. for the first time, that, that their hecklers are PhDs in heckling. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. They've got the experience and the skill. You learn how to, how to corral them? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was different then because, I mean, they had no experience of, you know, as I say, there was no, I, I was all there was, you know. So, but um, 
I mean, I'd certainly say London audience. I mean, I love the London audience. I think they're marvellous. So, I mean, you know, it's they're bright. and Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I I don't know what they're like with people, you know. (laughs) I mean, obviously I've been at the very pinnacle of entertainment for 7,000 years now. So, I mean, you know, nobody ever, you know, nobody ever heckles me. That's right, of course. Because I am so, so loved (laughs) that, uh, you know, uh, but I, I imagine for... Other lesser comedians, they can be difficult. Yes. All right, but imagine right. not as bad as Liverpool audience. Okay, well, I've never gigged in Liverpool, and I've been told that as yeah. well. You are loved, you are beloved when you get on stage. The expectations already there. You won even before you started when they announce your name. Do you still have a bad gig ever? Um, honestly, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, how I envy you. <laughs> uh, no, because I think. Um, but that is I don't do a lot of stand up you know oh, well right. I I mean I, I went back I'll tell you what I did I went back to stand up in I did 100 dates in you know I hadn't the last time I performed stand up was here in Australia in Perth uh, in 96 and then I gave it up for 17 years did and, Perth uh, make you give it up or it played its part all right yeah um, they know what they did <laughs> <laughs> yeah I kind of reached the end of it so when I went back in 2013 and I did like a lot of warm-ups and it was fine but my opening night at the Soho Theatre I was so nervous that I lost my voice for really yeah for about five minutes I just kind of squeaked and that was the most terrifying experience I, re- I thought for I was going I mean I, I eventually I just kind of made myself relax um and um you know it's press night as well you know I made myself relax and so you know it was fine but I thought there was a moment there where I thought I'm just gonna have to say you know stop right. this and say look you know I can't go on and that was just sheer nerves you know and I still pulled it out <laughs> right, of the of fire course, it, was yeah. a triumph. it was a triumph in the end <laughs> I got more I got a tre- tremendous number of four-star reviews. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, but here's the thing, and, and there is that. We, uh, comedians especially, we feel embarrassed saying, and I've made it work, and, and, and even now that you're almost mocking yourself for saying you pull yeah. it off. Uh, yeah. Because no one wants to hear that, yeah, I'm good at what I do. This is what I do, and I'm good at it. But, but what about the gigs? Are there the gigs that, that you still think back? When someone says, which is the gig that haunts you? Do you still have oh, those? Oh, yeah. Well, it's actually, in, just to do the plug, it's in the book, uh, Thatcher Stole My Trousers. For me, the most traumatizing one was probably, uh, for some reason, uh, during the first year of the comedy store, I decided to take the weekend off. And so I stayed at home drinking whiskey. And then uh, I decided I was going to go in after all and uh, perform, and everybody would love me for turning up. The other thing, I'd done this uh, act at a a pub we used to try out material where I pointed a gun at the audience. Okay. Now, what I hadn't realised was, but this was was an odd audience, so they hadn't minded, but the lesson I learned from that night was that if you point a gun, and it was a very realistic-looking gun, uh, if you point a gun at an audience, it makes them nervous, uh, surprisingly, which right, a lesson yeah. I hadn't learned. Okay, and I, so I turned up the comedy store drunk, and then nobody knew because it was a different audience every week, so they didn't know I was the regular MC. So there was no affection for me. So I was just a drunk guy waving a waving gun. a gun about. This sounds like most American open mic nights, probably. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, but in Britain, you know, yeah, it was, uh, yeah you know. Yeah, and I just died so badly. And that was also the first night um, that Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson performed at the Comedy Store. So they came on afterwards, and they got a tremendous response, partly out of relief because <laughs> because because they were following a drunk guy with a gun. Right. So um, 
you know, but they went down so well, and so I, so I not but when only you, failed. But when you say you died, does that mean silence, or does that mean... Well, no, they had this... No, the audience was screaming, get him off, get him off. Oh, okay, they were gong, vocal about gong. Oh, they were vocal, yeah. Well, they had this gong at the comedy store, which, you, you know, the MC would bang when an act was dying, and I'd... Gleefully, that was your role? Yeah, it? that was my role, and I'd gleefully done it to hundreds of people, and now it was happening to me, so there was also a kind of karma... Uh, you know, attached to it as well. So, um, you know, I got to feel what that was like. And I never, ever, right. I made sure from that moment on I was the MC. <laughs> I never, ever let that. You never relinquished the power I never that. relinquished that position of power from that day to this. Yeah. But now, uh, because at this stage, you've also got that point in your career where, where you can get on stage with a new idea, a new story that hasn't been tested before, and the audience will go along with it and, and give you the breath you need to kind of make it work. Um, yes, to Sorry. a degree. I mean, I don't... Uh, um... Hi, I'm Courtney Cathy. I'm the producer of Laughing Dead. And I just wanted to point this out. Sammy's just told him that, he, that Alexi doesn't have to try anymore. And the sounds that you're hearing out of Alexi are him being extremely polite. Extremely polite. This is Alexi Sale from The Young Ones. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess they will. I mean, I... So is there still nerves when you get up and, yeah. and you want to try something new? Oh, yeah. yeah, I've just done a radio series in uh, in Britain and there was a lot, of, a lot of new material in that. And that was kind of nerve-wracking. But certainly the audience did... Go with it. I, I mean, I'm. I mean, obviously, if you're well known and well liked, um, yeah, the audience will be more generous. I think that's true. But still, you've got to do it. I mean, I still. I mean, I was balking a little at what you said. Really, <laughs> seething inside. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> apologies. Acid was eating. No, right. it's all right. But acid was eating my heart at the things you said because I think you know because I. I mean, my feeling is that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I get an easier ride than somebody who's not. No, but you've low, achieved, but you've still, earned it. No one's saying yeah, that. Yeah, but also, I think you could, you know, if I wasn't being funny, mm -hmm. they still wouldn't. You can't force yourself to laugh, really, I think. And, that, and that, that alternative comedy sensibility, that's still in place in your voice and, and, and everything, but it's also more accepted now in the comedy audiences, right? Yeah, well, I think that... Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, when I went back out there again in 2013, there's several. One of the things I'd always, when I'd gone out before, I'd always wanted to be the best. I mean, if I was doing a charity thing, I wanted to smash it. If you know, I was doing a solo show, I wanted it to be the most extraordinary. And you know, and I realised in a way that that now was kind of pointless. I mean, that could be, really? because there was only like, well, because there was, you know, like in the 80s, there was only eight comics in Britain, and I was, so I could be the best, you know. Um, but I, now there's so many. I thought, well, having that ambition to, you know, just do the best show that you can do and don't feel compelled for it to be, you know, to, don't make it a competition, really, you right. know, anymore, which I, I was very competitive in the old days. Now, all that, I, I'd lost all that. And, I, and also, I thought, I always felt like I couldn't learn from anybody. But, you know, I thought, I had to kind of, before I went back to doing stand-up, I went around the circuit for a year just looking at people because I, I wanted to know what was new, you know, and what comics were, were kind of... You know, what was happening with that art and, form I'd invented. And so it's one of those, yeah, it's one of those people who invented that bit, especially in England. What do you think of the current state of 
stand-up comedy. I think, I mean, I, it's, a, it's, obvi- it's a massive business now. Yeah. And so, so there's that. We were immensely fortunate to, to, that there was that vacuum that we were filling, you know. And so that opportunity doesn't exist anymore. And so people, I think, would feel affection towards us and would laugh at us just simply because we weren't those other terrible guys, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's more difficult now because there's, there's, there's so much of it. I mean, the analogy I always use is, I mean, when, when my generation were good, we were... We could be extraordinary, me or Rick or Keith Allen or somebody. You, on a good night, we were breathtaking. On a bad night, we were shocking. Right. I mean, we were just so bad because partly because we were reinventing. You know, we were inventing things all over again, so we didn't know what. You know, I mean, I can remember Rick doing this gig at um, uh, in a big theatre in Edinburgh, and um, he came on in a rabbit suit, and he got a big laugh for like five minutes out the rabbit suit. But then he was stuck in the rabbit suit for 90 minutes and he died so badly because he had no authority. That's right. Because he was dressed as a fucking rabbit. And it, it undercut all the rest of the material then. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know. But that's a learning experience because yeah. no one had done that before probably. No, no, no. But it was, but I mean, the analogy I always use is that um, it's a bit like the early days of motoring. So, you know, if you went for a ride in a car in... Uh, 1911, it'd be really rattly and you'd probably crash into a tree and catch fire. But it'd be like a really exciting wild ride. <laughs> Whereas now... That was like Alexi Sale and you know, Bev Killick on this week's episode of Laughing Death. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate it I so much. Remember, so. you can find me on Facebook.com slash fans. Go to the Laughing Dead Facebook page, which is the ABC podcast page. And you can also email us now because we have our own dedicated email account. That's right. You can send your spam, your Viagra donations or whatever you want to or any Nigerian emails you have about princes getting money to laughingdead at abc.net.au. And we will read the best ones out on air next week. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a good one.